All right. We're in Revelation 19 this morning. This is exciting for me because we've turned a corner in the book in chapter 19 where things start getting a little more positive <laughs> um, and uh, a little less hard on you in your soul than talking about God's wrath and judgment for weeks and weeks. Um, and so I think this, this is timely, and I don't think I'm twisting the scripture at all to say this is timely, um, because I mentioned that, you know, fear is a real problem, and it sneaks up on you. I mean, I realized just during worship, singing about the resurrection of Christ, that there was a little caked-on layer of anxiety and fear that had just sort of eased and settled onto my heart, and it just fell right off. And so all of us, none of us are exempt from this. And the answer to fear is not to try not to be afraid. The answer is love. Love casts out fear. So you meditate on God's love for you, and you love other people. And as you love others, you stop being worried about hoarding your own toilet paper and start being concerned about giving other people your toilet paper. Right? And that, that process in your soul is actually life to you and alleviates your fear. So that you're not doing crazy things and you're not just full of anxiety and double-mindedness, all right? So that's where we're going to end up this morning um, is how much Jesus loves us. And I'm hoping it'll be just good for your soul like it is mine, all right? So we have just three or four weeks left in Revelation. Um, Woohoo! we're going to be done. It's going to be amazing. I always feel like a real sense of accomplishment when we finish a book. Um, Chapter 19 begins with a hymn of rejoicing, recalling familiar imagery that if you've been following along in the book of Revelation, you're gonna, it's going to feel very familiar to you. There's a great multitude singing the song we're going to read. Most likely, all of heaven's occupants are there, including us, singing together, which is a sound I can't wait to hear. What will that even sound like? Just think of every Christian who has ever lived throughout all of time, eternity past, eternity future, every single one, plus every heavenly creature, every angel, the seraphim, all of them singing at one time to one person. I think it'll just be absolutely, I don't even know how I will be able to sing because it'll be so moving to hear that sound. I can't wait. All right, so that's the sound. So try to use your imagination as we read this. Imagine that many people singing this song. And they're singing in response to this final purge of wickedness from the earth that we've read about for a few weeks, where Jesus comes and he just cleanses the whole thing and he finishes everything up and wickedness is locked up and thrown into hell, right? No one's in rebellion against him anymore, all right? So let's look at Revelation 19. We'll do verses 4 and 5. And by the way, the word hallelujah means praise God, if you didn't know that. I always forget to, to say that. Revelation 19, verses 4 and 5, is, And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him. Let's keep going to uh, verses 6 through 10. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, 
And like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, here's the song, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That last phrase we could do a whole sermon on, but we're not going to. So what's going on here? This whole like marriage supper of the lamb and the bride has made herself ready and all this talk, that imagery. We're going to talk, we, in order to understand that, we need to understand the Hebrew marriage customs to understand the metaphor because it's not just here in Revelation. It's all over the whole Bible. And Jesus used it a lot. Paul used it a lot. So I'm going to learn you something real quick, all right? The first stage in Hebrew marriage customs, all right? This is American modern-day marriage customs are similar, but a little different in some important ways, all right? Because the first step would be betrothal. And this was way more binding than an engagement in our culture. When you were betrothed to someone, you were considered legally married, Okay? The terms of the marriage were, are agreed to before multiple witnesses, very similar to a marriage ceremony here. Then God's blessing is pronounced on the marriage, and the couple is considered legally married. You can see an example of that in 2 Corinthians. So at that point, the couple is officially legally married, but they're not living in the same house, okay? Because what happens next is this interval of preparation where um, the betrothal and the the wedding feast, there's a gap in between. The husband leaves the wife, and he goes away, usually to his father's house, because he's been living with his father. He goes to his father's house and adds on a room or a wing to the house, right? And if they have lots and lots of money, they might build, he might, his father might help him build a separate house, but that was not really typical. The typical thing was to just add a room to your father's house, sort of expand the bedroom, right, for, for the wife to live in. The bride would stay in her father's house until the noon home was ready for her, all right? So, and they have not consummated the marriage at this point, all right? This is a difficult interval period, all right, between we're married and when we can actually be together, right? So picture this. If you know some of the stuff Jesus said, you know where I'm going, all right? You've been betrothed. Wife stays in her father's house. New husband goes away to his father's house, builds onto it. And then after this, this could take years. Up to seven years, this period could last. I don't think that's insignificant. The seven years, and then many times the word seven is, and seven years has been used in Revelation. I don't think that's a coincidence. During this time, the husband will also pay the agreed-upon dowry to the father of the bride if he has not already paid it. Sometimes they would pay it if they had lots of money, 
right there at the um, betrothal. The dowry can also be in the form of services rendered instead of material things like money. The husband might serve the father of the bride for seven years in his household, working in his fields or whatever the case might be, in order to pay that dowry to the father. Seven years. Can you imagine being married but not together for seven years, trying to work your way back to your wife? The poor woman having to just sit around and wait. Get your act together. It's been three years. Then, finally, there's the wedding feast, right? At the close of this interval, however long it might take, the bride prepares herself. She receives word. The dowry has been paid. The home is prepared. Everything is set. Your hubby is coming, right? So she prepares herself um, with the finest clothes. They usually spend a lot of money on a nice dress, kind of like we do in our marriages, wedding ceremonies perfume, jewelry, all that stuff, and the groom does the same thing and gets his nice tux on, right? Just his tie, maybe some cologne, probably too much, right? <laughs> Takes him half the time to get ready as she does. And he leads, this is really cool, just picture this, a colorful procession with all of his friends and family, all the people who love him the most. And they make a little parade with dancing and singing and loud music and shouts and everybody's wearing colorful things and banners and they have a procession and, if, and sometimes the two homes are really far from each other. And so this band of celebrating people are just going traipsing through the countryside to the wife who's waiting in her wedding dress. And finally, they arrive at the home of the bride, and there they consummate the marriage while the party continues outside. Sounds a little awkward, but that's what they did. Then he retrieves her from her father's house, and they both lead the same procession back to her new home. Right? Woo! And there they have this massive marriage feast. So the party doesn't end there. They have a marriage feast that can last seven to ten days. So we have a little reception after our weddings. <laughs> Seven days. And if the journey home was a long way, the party would be spread out at family locations along the way. If it was an overnight journey, they'd have parties at each stop, like a roving band of marriage partiers. <laughs> so I think you're probably starting to see some of the parallels, right? So throughout Scripture, the marriage relationship is compared to the relationship between God and Israel in the Old Testament and between Christ and his church in the New Testament, all right? Over and over again, it's a common theme that God uses to demonstrate or show us how he feels about us and how we relate to him and what our relationship is like. Right before the crucifixion, Jesus told the disciples something that they really didn't understand when he said it. But now we understand it in light of Revelation 19, which we just read, all right? John 14, 1 through 3. Here's what it says. Let not, this is Jesus speaking. He says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself 
that where I am, you may be also. Now, they were thinking, like, what is he even talking about? When you can read it, like, they don't understand what in the world he's, you're leaving to build a house for us, and then what? He's talking about betrothal, interval, wedding feast, right? He's saying, we are betrothed, right? At the cross and at Jesus' resurrection, we were betrothed to him. That was the, the betrothal ceremony, right? And he says, now I'm going to leave as tradition dictates, right? You should be familiar with this. And they're like, I don't understand, right? If their wives had been there, they probably would have explained it to them. But, and then I'm going to leave, and I'm going to work. I'm going to be busy preparing a place for you. And then when the time is right, I'm going to come back and get you, and I'm going to come back, and it's going to be a party, right? And then John, in Revelation 19, says, we are invited to the wedding supper, the marriage feast of the Lamb. You have an invitation. Verses 7 and 8 are really interesting. It says, let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So Jesus is away working for us, making a place for us. But we're not sitting here passively doing nothing. There's work for us to do. There's preparation for us to do. And you can ponder this. Like, what does that mean? Right? What does it mean? What are we supposed to be doing, preparing? What, is it, what does that metaphor mean of putting on fine linen and what does it mean, the righteous deeds of the saints? I think it can be three things, which is really two, but I'm splitting it out into three, all right? One, all that means that Jesus is waiting for all that he is called to actually come in, right? People have to be born, that he's designated to be in the sheepfold, and they have to be brought into his kingdom. So there's that, right? There's nothing we can do about that, but just be witnesses. We don't know who, what he's waiting on, who he's waiting on. That's just what he's doing. Two, the church is to be sanctified to his satisfaction. He's working in his church, doing something, bringing us to some point. And then you can press that too far and go, well, where are we earning his return? No. Are we going to be perfect before he returns? No. But he's bringing us together and he's getting us to some point. He's preparing us, making us righteous. And part of how we're doing that is by sharing in the sufferings of Christ. This is a beautiful idea mentioned by Peter and Paul in three scriptures. Jesus is not just waiting until the world is so bad he's had enough and comes back. There's something about us sharing in his suffering, partaking in it. We are unified with Christ. This is a mysterious idea. But somehow, when life is hard on you, when you get sick, when friends of yours die, when the cancer diagnosis comes in, or when you're persecuted for the faith, somehow that suffering is a participation in the suffering of Christ. So you're not just participating in his blessing, we're also participating in his suffering, and your suffering has meaning, not because you see an immediate result from it in your personal life, 
But if nothing else, your suffering has meaning in that you are sharing in Christ's suffering. That's what Paul says. He says, I have joy in my suffering because I'm sharing in Christ's suffering. Jesus isn't absent-mindedly waiting until someone, some randomly appointed time. Jesus is actively bringing every person into the church that he has called, and he is allowing his church to share in his sufferings and delight in their unity with him, even in his sacrifice. So we cannot earn or repay the sacrifice of Jesus for us. However, we can participate in what he did for us. That's part of what we're doing here. So we are being prepared by Jesus. Jesus is preparing a place for us. And one day when he returns, it won't be like he came the first time. Quietly, with just a cry in the dark. It'll be completely different. (laughs) And this time it will be loud, and it will be joyous, and it will be intense. And everyone will know what's happening, right? So that's what we read about next. If verses 6 through 10 are the wedding procession, verses 11 through 21 is the description of the groom when he arrives. You'll recognize some of the imagery here too. Here's what it says, verses 11 through 21. Then I saw heaven opened, And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. This harkens right back to the beginning of Revelation. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. So it's a procession. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He would tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, And with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. So this is a summary of everything we've been reading about for the last several weeks. This is a picture of a groom who is the hero of the story. He's got all these enemies surrounding his bride, right? And he's coming back to get her. 
And in between her and him are all the armies of the earth arrayed against him to prevent him from doing that. And they are nothing to him. He absolutely wipes them out without even trying. And they are gathered up and thrown into hell. And over that sea of his victory over their enemies, he calls to his bride and says, let's have a party. This is not a groom who is nervous and insecure, quietly knocking on the door saying, sweetie, I'm, I'm here. It's time to go home. No, this is the king of all kings, the mightiest king, riding on his big white steed with a procession of all the angels of heaven on their white steeds behind him, rushing in, having conquered every enemy that has stood against her, and he rescues her from harm and snatches her up and says, let's go have a wedding feast. Jesus will not return to negotiate, plead, suffer, or convince. He will return on his horse, ready for battle, to rescue his bride at last from her suffering in his name. This is why we see this picture over and over again of us celebrating when the enemy is wiped out. This is why the descriptions are so gory. Because these are our enemies. These are the, 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 the people and the world systems, including Satan himself, that have harassed us and made us suffer and caused us pain and killed and afflicted so many of us over the centuries. This is our enemy as well as it is his. And so when our enemy is wiped out, we go, woohoo! Because this means the suffering is over. The tearing in my soul over constant temptation to rebel against God. The constant need to push against this God of comfort and safety that we worship so much in this country. All of that's over. Imagine waking up in the morning. Not only is there no coronavirus, but there's no possibility of it. There's no possibility of being sick. There's no possibility of dying. There's no possibility of anyone you love dying. There's no fear whatsoever. And there is only safety and comfort and absolute perfect provision. And there is nothing in your heart that wants to sin. Imagine it. That's what this means. That's what it means to be rescued by Jesus riding in on his white horse. You don't want Jesus to come and negotiate. Tell you what, I'll meet you halfway. I'll let you sin a little. And I'll meet you the rest of the way. No, he's not going to do that. This king, this mighty king, remember, he's your husband. Now, guys, it's a little hard to kind of get your head around. One thing that helps me is to remember that it's not you yourself individually that is the bride of Christ. It's us together, the church, all of us, not just Living Hope Church, but I don't know if you knew this, there are other churches down the street. There are other churches in other cities and other countries that speak different languages, all right? It's all of us, we together are the bride of Christ. Think about how much he must love you. Think about that image of a husband 
who has been betrothed, married to his bride, but cannot be with her. How furiously is he going to be working to prepare? He has not, not to be gross, but he has not consummated the marriage. So even that is not satisfied. And there is an ache in his soul to be with her. There's a reason why God and Jesus and Paul and Peter use this metaphor. It's because it's a picture of how Jesus feels about you right now. He wants to be with you. And he is working tirelessly to make a way to come back to see you. He's not there tapping his foot impatiently waiting for us to get it. He's not doing that. He is anxiously working in a godly way. Hard at work to come and be with you and to bring you home with him. That's his desire. That's how he feels about you. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 22. I'm not going to read it. I'll just encapsulate it for you. In this story, it's a made-up story by Jesus to illustrate a point. Okay, that's what a parable is. In this story, he describes a king, right? Obviously, the king is the father, God the father. The king announces a wedding feast for his son. Obviously, the son is Jesus, right? He sends out his servants with invitations to his friends and family, as one does. Hey, we're going to have a wedding feast. My son's gotten married. He's going to get his bride. He's going to come back. There's going to be a party. Everybody come. All the people that are close to him, he wants to be at this party. And everybody he invites says, no, I'm too busy. You know, i got to feed the dog. i got to wash my hair. I've got to find my cat. It went loose in the neighborhood. Sorry, there's a virus. Whatever. Right? So he sends out an invitation to all of us, and and they all just say, I'm too busy. It's like, it's not you. We would love to be there, but we just can't. We've got a lot going on. Servants come back going, hey, I'm sorry, king. Nobody comes. He says, look, go back and tell them. Maybe they don't understand how awesome this party is going to be. He says, I'm going to kill the fatted calf. I've spared no expense. It's going to be the party of the century. I've really incentivized this for you to come. It's going to be awesome. So they go back out to the same people with an enhanced invitation. Same answer. Sorry, got a lot going on. Can't do it. They come back to the king, and now he's mad. And he says, those useless, worthless people, those unworthy people that you invited, I want you to go to the highways and the byways and find anybody and everybody, including criminals, and invite them into the party because I'm going to see that every seat at my table is filled. We're going to have a party. And then he sends out his army to kill the people who rejected the invitation and burn their houses down and burn their cities down. Sounds like Revelation, doesn't it? Then during the party, there's this last interesting part they have this party and all sorts of people there. The son spot, or the father spots a guest across the room who's not dressed for the party. In other words, he's an imposter. And he goes to that guy and says, how'd you get in here? Somebody snuck in and thought they could just kind of pretend, crash the party, wedding crashers. And he takes them and he throws them out where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, as he says. So what's this mean? The king is God the father, the son is Jesus. 
And we know, right, first the Jews were invited by Jesus into the party and they rejected him. So then what does the father do? He says, okay, we'll send the gospel out, the same invitation to the world. Anybody and everybody. All the riffraff of the world. The vagabonds, the riffraff, the ne'er-do-wells. That's us. If you're not a Jew by birth, then that's you, right? You got in because they were, God is going to fill his table with people. That's his goal. We're going to have a party. But every imposter is going to be spotted. You can't fake an invitation. You can't just pretend your way in and say, I'm just going to hang in the back and no one will notice me even though I wasn't invited. There are no pretenders. There are no fakers. There are no wedding crashers in heaven. Everybody gets in through Jesus and there's no other way. You can't slide in the back door by being a good person. Can't do it. There is a standing invitation from the Father to come to the party. Every gospel presentation, every act of grace from the church to the world, every funeral, every calamity, every pestilence is a reminder to the world that it's time to drop what you're doing and join the party with the sun. Get in the party procession. Time's running out. That's what's happening right now. Everybody's busy wondering, like, what does this virus do? And no one's asking the more important question is, why is it happening? What does it mean? Right? What does this virus mean? It means that God is sovereign and God can wipe us out anytime he wants to. It is, I've said this before, it is easy to die. Dying is the easiest thing in the world to do. It really is. And this is a you know this when you go to a funeral, Right? Especially if it's one of those open casket deals, which nobody wants to do anymore. What, what does that do in your soul? It goes, oh, yeah, I'm frail. This tiny, itty-bitty bug that I can only see in them under a microscope can have us all run into the hills. Maybe the answer is, shouldn't we repent and turn to him? Maybe that's what we should be doing. This is the message God is sending to the world. You are not safe. All the things that you were depending on to make you feel like everything was fine is gone, or at least threatened. Like maybe even if you hole up in your house and don't talk to anybody for the next six months and just don't leave your house, get HEPA filters all over your house, live inside of a hazmat suit, fogged up, you know, just sitting on your couch with your Netflix remote covered in saran wrap and a bottle of sanitizer next to you. I'm going to wait it out, man. You still, it's still going to touch you, isn't it? How are you going to pay, for, pay your bills? How are you going to live? How are you going to eat? You got to take the helmet off just to eat. Maybe I can eat through a straw and grind my food up in the blender. I can figure it out, man. You see, this is God speaking through nature to, our, to the world. So what are you dependent on? What makes you feel safe? Is it knowing that Jesus is coming on that white horse and he's running hard and fast towards me and he wants nothing else but to be with us and to take us home and he is coming to gather up all this brokenness and all this wickedness and all this rebellion and all this sin including the sin in my own heart gather it up lock it up and throw it into hell 
and we're going home. Where's your comfort? If you're not a Christian, you should be afraid because you do not have that comfort because you're the one he's, right, he's trampling over when he comes back. And that's scary. That's way scarier than a virus. And so for those of us already in the party, you should enjoy it. Okay? If you're in Christ, you should be enjoying the party. This doesn't feel like a party right now. We can't have parties over 100 people, though. Sorry. It's all right. We'll figure it out. Okay? We'll figure it out. But metaphorically speaking, enjoy the party. Don't let fear and of death. I mean, come on. What's death going to do to you? The world's afraid of death, and it should be. Death is the worst thing that can happen to somebody who's not a believer. But when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, one of the amazing things he did is he converted death. He used it. It's now his tool. It's a tool in his hand. It's now your chauffeur. Imagine death not in the big black thing with the sickle. I'm coming for you. Instead, imagine a chauffeur in a tuxedo and a little funny hat they wear and a stretched limo saying, I'm coming for you. Hop in. Jesus changed that. It's now, the, it's now your ticket to get to go home early. I don't have to wait for my husband to come get me. I get to go to him. That's what death for the Christian means. But don't get confused. The world needs to be afraid of death. Don't tell them not to be afraid of it. You should be afraid. Because if you die outside of Christ, if you die as an object of his wrath and judgment, you stay there for eternity. It's the worst thing that can happen to you. Hole up in your home. It would be better to get saved. So don't be distracted by the fear and the busyness of the world. Because this is going to blow over at some point eventually. Who knows what the toll will be. But at some point it will blow over and life will continue and you'll still have the same challenge. Don't be distracted. This virus has awakened the fear of death in many people. Don't let it happen to you. Okay? I think this requires real vigilance. I'm realizing it this morning. As I said, it's like dust that settles on you. If you're not actively resisting it by getting in the word, praying, like thinking about the, just the words we sang this morning, the power of that is you're, 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 putting, you're telling your mind what to think about. It's what singing does. It's also what prayer does. You're telling your mind what to think about, therefore what your soul should feel is that God is in control, God loves me, and even if I get sick and die, win-win. I mean, the rest of us are going to be sad you're gone that we can't see you for a little while. That is sad for us, okay? But it is not sad for you. There's always there, the one person in a funeral that is happy is the person that's dead, if it's a Christian. <laughs> Everybody else is sad, but that person is partying, is at the wedding feast. They got to go to the wedding feast, right? It's an amazing thing. So don't fear death and don't let it diminish your worship. Jesus loves you. 
So what does it look like for us to love the world like this? This is the invitation. It's what it means to be a witness. It's to share your invitation. Hey, don't you want to not be afraid? Don't you want the biggest, scariest thing in the world, which is death, to no longer have an effect on you? Don't you want to be, don't you want to leave Babylon? Because it's scary in there. <laughs> Zion is awesome. So that's what I want to pray for us. I want to pray first that God would, that we would see Jesus as he is now, as our groom coming for us who is mighty, 